Last week, we looked at the story of the conversion of Saul. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a first century terrorist who went around terrorizing the Christians until he came face to face with Jesus himself and was ministered to by a man named Ananias. And I told you last week that I believe that after the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, that that event may have been the most important event in the history of the Christian church because of what Saul went on to do. <clears throat> but the event that we're going to talk about today, I believe, is even more significant. Uh, it, it, where, whereas the conversion of Saul may have been the most significant event in the history of the, of the New Testament, I believe what we're going to study today may just be the most significant <clears throat> event in the Bible. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to back that major claim up here as we tell this story. Uh, but before we do that, I, I want to invite you to imagine a few things, because for us to understand the significance of what we're going to study today, uh, we need to put ourselves in the, sh in the sandals of a first century Jew. So I want you to imagine just for a moment, growing up, believing that you belonged to a special class of people known as God's chosen people. Believing that, that because of your birth, because of your religion, because of the God that you worship, that you, among all of the people on the earth, were selected by God to bear his light and to receive his goodness and his grace. And because you believed that you were selected by God, because you believed that you were part of this group of God's chosen people, you wouldn't really associate with outsiders. You, you believe that God had called you to be separate, and so you would stay with your people, and you would worship your God in, in your way, and you wouldn't really, you wouldn't hang out with everybody else, the, all those people that you would call Gentiles. As a matter of fact, every aspect of your life would remind you that you were different, that you were set apart, that you were to be, that you were to be uh, wholly different from the rest of the world. So what you wore... The way you worshipped God, the God that you worshipped because you just worshipped one instead of the whole pantheon. The, even the food that you would eat or wouldn't eat would be a reminder to you on a daily basis that you were different than everybody else. And if you were like many first century Jews, you would come to believe that maybe you were not only different than everybody else, but you were better than everybody else because God had chosen your people. Now I want you to imagine the embarrassment that you would feel in the first century as a Jew, knowing that as God's chosen people, you were living in subjugation to those Gentiles, to those outsiders, to those foreigners. Imagine the embarrassment of believing that you were supposed to be this nation blessed by God, and you were supposed to be the head and not the tail, and yet in this period of history, you were living under Roman oppression. And so you would dream of the day that God would finally fulfill his promise that he would send forth his, his deliverer who would break the chains of foreign oppression, who would cast off those, uh, who, would, who would overthrow those foreign oppressors and eventually destroy them and raise you up to your place of significance. This is likely how Peter was brought up to believe. The Apostle Peter grew up as a Jewish boy in first century Palestine. And he was probably led to believe, he was probably taught that he was among God's chosen people. And everything that he did, every aspect of his life would remind him that he was different from his clothing, to how they would worship, to when they would worship, to the very food that he would eat and wouldn't eat was all a reminder to him that he was different. 
And he grew up believing that someday God would send forth a deliverer who would cast away the Roman oppression that was holding them down and restore Israel to its former greatness. Uh, This is probably what, what Peter believed about the Gentiles in general, as well as the Romans in particular. So with that in mind, imagining that you grew up with that kind of mindset, imagining that this was how you were taught to believe your entire life, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 in your Bible, Acts is the story written by Luke, tells us the growth of the early church. If you don't have your Bibles, I'll put the text up on the screen as usual. Here's how Luke begins this story. Luke chapter 10, verse 1, he says, In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. So Luke brings us to a new city. So far, we've seen Jerusalem. We've spent a little bit of time in Damascus. And now Luke is bringing us to the city of Caesarea. I've got a map up here on the screen. Caesarea was about 70 miles northwest of the city of Jerusalem. And it was the headquarters of the Roman government in the province of Palestine. It was built by Herod the Great at the end of the first century B.C. Uh, It was really nice climate. It was by the sea. There was lots to do. There was a theater and an amphitheater. It was the place to be uh, if you were a Roman who had to, for some reason, be living in the realm of Palestine. You would live in Caesarea. And it was the seat of the Roman government. The Roman governor would usually live in Caesarea and would only visit Jerusalem during festivals and other times. Only when he sort of had to, they would live and, and uh, spend most of their time in Caesarea. It was just a nicer climate. There was, it was more like home. It was very Roman in every way, which you can tell just by its name. It was named Caesarea after Caesar. Uh, so we're, we're moving out of Jewish Jerusalem and into uh, the Roman area of Caesarea, and we're introduced to a man named Cornelius. Uh, Luke tells us that Cornelius was a centurion of the Italian cohort. Now, a centurion was an officer in the Roman army. He would oversee uh, 80 soldiers, not 100 as the name uh, implies, but a centurion would oversee a group of 80 soldiers. Now, those of you who have heard me talk about centurions from a Roman perspective before know what's coming. Uh, Those of you who haven't, this might be a little surprising to you. But when you, as a Jew... When you think of a Roman centurion, your, your initial reaction is this. Right? Because not only are, are Roman centurions Gentiles, and Jews already don't hang out with Gentiles, but Roman centurions are Romans, and Romans are the ones who are holding the Jews down in, in oppression in Palestine, who are occupying their land. But not only was he a, a Roman, he was a Roman soldier. And Roman soldiers are the ones who, uh, emph- who enforce the law, enforce Roman law. And they're the ones who will come through and will brutally uh, attack your people if there's any sign of insurrection. And not only was he a Roman soldier, he was a Roman centurion. So he was responsible for other Romans. So when, when, when Jews were to think of a Roman centurion, this is the picture of the enemy. These are the very people who are holding you down. So Luke, is taught, he's introducing to us a, a Roman centurion living in a Roman city. And, and so the, the Jews' response when you read this, a centurion is, do it with me now. Okay? This is, this is how they have come to view the Roman centurions. Luke goes on in the story, verse 2. He says, he was a devout man. At which point we start to go, hold on, wait, what? I thought he was a centurion. 
I thought he was an enemy. I thought he was one of those dirty outsiders. He was, but Luke tells us he was a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously and prayed constantly to God. Wait a second. This guy, he's an enemy. He's a centurion. He's a Roman. He's a Gentile. And Luke here is telling us that he actually fears and prays to God. And so Luke is already starting to break down some of these categories that people had built up around different groups of people. Luke is already beginning to say, hey, not everybody looks or is what they look like they are from the outside. Now, to help us understand this a little bit more, scholars have told us that in ancient Judaism, there were, groups, there were different groups of people. There were the Jews who were Jews by birth, right? Uh, Judaism was not only a religion, but it was also a race. If you were a Jew, you were a Jew because you were born from a family of Jews. And, and, and the religion came along with that, but there was, there was honor in that heritage, in, in that bloodline, and coming from the Jewish bloodline. Uh, but there were also people who weren't born Jewish, who through their interactions with some of the Jews had come to appreciate the Jewish God and had come to appreciate the Jewish way of life. And so they said, you know what, I want to be one of them. And even though they weren't Jews, they would go through a process of conversion. They would become what was called a proselyte. And so a proselyte would be a Gentile who was born a Gentile but would convert fully to Judaism and would go through all of the necessary uh, steps to become a Jew, which sometimes, if you were a man, involved a little bit of surgery called circumcision. So it was, it, was, it was a major commitment. If you were born as a Gentile and wanted to become a full Jew, you would, have to, you would have to take on all of the aspects of Jewish identity, including circumcision and all the dietary laws. And so for some people, that was just, understandably, right, a, little, a bridge just a little too far to, to undergo a little bit of surgery um, in, a, in a sensitive area and to give up you know, your diet may have been a bridge too far. But so some people, they really liked the, the Jewish God and they really liked what, what the Jews were teaching and they wanted to be associated with them, but they didn't want to go all the way. So they were what was known as God-fearers. God-fearers. These groups of, these people who would associate themselves with Jews, but they wouldn't go all the way. They wouldn't do the surgery and they wouldn't do the dietary laws, but they would associate with the synagogue and, and they would pray to God. And um, there were different opinions on them, but, but they were... Uh, they were people who feared, who respected, who honored the Jewish God and wanted to live in a way that pleased them. They just didn't want to take on all of the, the cultural aspects, the surgery and the dietary laws and all that. So it, it appears that Cornelius is one of these God-fearers. Even though he's a Gentile, even though he's a Roman, even though he's a Roman soldier, even though he's a centurion enforced with keeping the peace of Rome in the area of Palestine, he has still at some point come in contact with the Jewish synagogue and, and has come to respect the Jewish God and, and prays to the Jewish God and does good things for the Jewish community there. And so Luke is already messing with our, our categories just a little bit. Uh, and so that makes what happens next just a little bit more exciting. Here's what Luke says happens next. He says, one afternoon, about three o'clock, that was a typical time of prayer, a typical time of prayer. Uh, so he was praying, probably. He had a vision. Cornelius had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And then Cornelius did what everybody else who's ever visited by an angel in Scripture does. He stared at him in terror. Right? Every time an angel shows up in Scripture, the people are just terrified. Um, now, I know the Bible says that sometimes people have entertained angels unawares, but it seems like every time an angel shows up to somebody, people are terrified, and Cornelius was the same. And so his response, understandably, is, uh, uh, what is it, Lord? 
And the angel responds. He answered, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. This is a really big deal. Right? If, if we're putting ourselves in the sandals of first century Jews living in Palestine, believing that Romans are the epitome of the enemy, and here we have a story of an angel from God showing up to a Roman centurion and telling this Roman centurion, not God is going to judge you for, for what you're doing, but your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. In other words, this angel is showing up to Cornelius and saying, God sees you, and God cares about you, and God hears your prayer. And so for Jews to hear this, that an angel showed up to an outsider with this kind of message would have been mind-boggling. The angel goes on. He says, Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with another man named Simon, a tanner whose house is by the seaside. Now this is fascinating to me. Because God had heard Cornelius' prayers and obviously cared enough to send an angel directly to Cornelius to let him know that God heard his prayers. But the angel, instead of preaching the gospel to Cornelius directly, tells Cornelius to go send for another human being. To go send for Peter. And this is fascinating to me. It, 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 this whole idea that God has entrusted humans, people, with the ministry of reconciliation, with, with the word of the gospel. The angel could have preached the gospel to Cornelius, could have told them about Jesus and the resurrection from the dead and all of that. But instead, he, sends, he tells Cornelius to send people to find another human being who's going to come do the same thing. It's just fascinating to me. Uh, so Luke tells Cornelius, uh, and Cornelius follows the instructions. He sends two of his slaves and one of his soldiers to the city of Joppa. This is where Peter had been hanging out. So here's another map for you. Joppa was about 40 miles south of Caesarea, uh, right there on the coastline. Back in Acts chapter 9, Luke tells us that Peter had been going around, visiting the different churches, and was uh, just checking on the believers. And at this particular time, he was spending some time in the city of Joppa. So what we know by this point is the believers who had spread from Jerusalem had established churches outside of Jerusalem, and there were some churches meeting in the city of Joppa, and Peter was there checking on them and taking care of them. Um, so again, if, if we were watching a movie, right, we would have a scene change. We would, we would have a scene change from Cornelius' house, to, uh, and then we'd, we would fade to black, and Peter would come up on the screen. And so here's how Luke tells us, here's what Luke says happens next. He says, about noon the next day, as they, the, the messengers, were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Now, this was normal in that culture. Their houses typically had stairways leading up to the roof. Uh, it was hot. They didn't have air conditioning. And so sometimes sitting on the roof, they may have an awning. And you might have the breeze, especially the breeze from the sea if you're in the city of Joppa right there on the coast. So people would often hang out on the roof. Sometimes if it was too hot inside, you might sleep on the roof. So it was normal for them to, you know, to hang out on their roofs. That's what Peter was doing. He went up on the roof to pray. Luke tells us that it was about noon. He became hungry. He's a lot like us, right? Peter was human. We, I get hungry about noon. Uh, and so while he was waiting for it to be prepared, I guess he like called down to the house and, and asked for a sandwich. And while he was waiting for it to be made, um, it says he fell into a trance. He fell into a trance. And here's what happened in this trance. 
He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Jewish dietary laws were very, very strict. The, the Old Testament law had very strict laws about what could be eaten and what couldn't be eaten, and even what, could, what, what couldn't be mixed together. Their, their dietary laws were very, very strict. And so here, Peter is hungry, and he has this vision of all of these different animals coming down, of all different kinds, and he hears this voice saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And as a good Jew, Peter would know that I can't kill these animals and eat them. These are unclean. I've been taught my entire life. And so it's almost like this vision is kind of like a cruel joke. Right? He's hungry, and now he's having this dream about really tasty food coming down that he's not allowed to eat. It's sort of be like if, if, uh, if you were on a diet, and somebody, you know, you're really hungry, and somebody holds up a, a picture of a like, big piece of chocolate cake. And you're like, come on, why would you show that to me? You know that I can't have that right now. That's what, that's what Peter is experiencing. But, but even more than that, not only is he not supposed to eat it for health reasons, but, but for religious reasons. He knew that eating these things would, at least according to the Old Testament covenant, would, would cut him off from covenant with God. That's how serious these dietary laws were. And now he hears this voice, who he assumes to be the voice of God, saying, kill and eat. Uh, for people who grew up in, in holiness traditions, uh, Christian holiness traditions who have been taught their whole life that you know alcohol is the devil's brew. This would be something like you being really thirsty on a hot summer's day, and God gives you a vision of a really frosty uh, mug of beer, saying "Take and drink," and you're like, "Whoa, whoa, that's not supposed to touch my lips." I know I'm thirsty, but but this is that's not supposed to get anywhere near me. That this is this is exactly what it would have been like for Peter to see these animals come down and hear this voice say, "Kill and eat," which makes uh, Peter's response a little bit more um, understandable. He says, "Heck no, Lord." Now that's the Thomas Horrocks translation, but it's actually pretty good. Um, the, the word used here really means, like, no way. Absolutely not. By no means. God forbid. Right? This, that's, that's what this word uh, in Greek means. Heck no. Right? Imagine saying heck no to God. But, but this had been so ingrained in Peter's life. Uh, this had been so uh, ingrained in his way of thinking that you don't do this. Maybe Peter thought he was being tempted. Right? Maybe Peter thought that this was some sort of a test that he had to pass. Maybe he remembered that Jesus was hungry and, and went into the wilderness and was tested to make to turn stones into bread. Maybe he thinks he's getting his own version of temptation. And, and so he's trying to pass the test. Like, okay, I'm hungry, but God, uh, I, I'm still not going to eat. I'd rather, I'd rather go hungry than eat what I'm not supposed to eat. And so he responds to God, I'm not going to do it. And maybe he thinks like he's passing this, this temptation or this test from God. But what we're going to see is that God was actually trying to teach him a lesson. God was trying to teach him a lesson. And here's, uh, what, here's how God responds in the next verse. The voice said to him again a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. It's a pretty big statement. But it sure would have conf confused the heck out of Peter. Because Peter would be like, God, um, I didn't call them unclean. You did. Remember? In that law that you gave Moses more than a thousand years ago, you're the one who told us these animals are unclean. That's why, I haven't, that's why I've gone my whole life without having any bacon. 
Because you've told me that these animals are unclean. It's right here in the Bible, God. And he pulls out his smartphone and he flips to Leviticus and he says, look, here, write it, right, right. You, you gave this to Moses. And here God is saying, you aren't to call this unclean. In other words, what Peter is say, saying here is, God, we've been doing this for a thousand years. This, this wasn't my idea, God. We've always done it this way. We've always done it this way. And God says, well, I'm changing things up. There's a change of plan. So here's, here's how the story continues. Luke tells us this happened three times. Three times Peter had this vision. Three times Peter said, heck no to God. And God says, hey, stop calling unclean what I have made clean. And the entire... And I think that this had to happen three times because otherwise Peter wouldn't have believed it. He would have thought like he, he dozed off while he was praying and like some bad fish from the night before gave him a weird dream. Right? I think this had to happen three times so that Peter would really know that this was a vision from God and not just some weird thing he made up on his own while he dozed off waiting for lunch. And this idea, it would have represented a major change in Peter's thinking. Uh, here's what happens next. Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision that he had seen, suddenly the men <coughs> sent by <coughs> excuse me <coughs> the men sent by Cornelius appeared. So Peter's sitting there wondering what's going on. What what, is, what does this whole vision mean? What am I supposed to do with this? Does this mean that I can have bacon for lunch now? Like like what's the point? And as he's wondering about this, we see, you know, so again, picture this as a movie. We zoom out, and you see three men approaching the house, and Peter's sitting on the, on the roof, and we hear, dun-dun-dun, right? This is, the, this, is the, this is the climax of the story. It, because Luke is telling the story in a way that, that those of us who are reading, we can sort of see what's happening, and we can sort of piece this together. We know that an angel showed up to Cornelius, and we see Peter on the roof, and so we have this big perspective, but, but Peter didn't know any of this. Peter didn't know that uh, an angel had shown up to Cornelius. Peter didn't know that there were three people coming to him who were going to bring him back to a, a Roman centurion. He just had this really strange vision about food while he was hungry. And so he's trying to figure out what this means. So here's how the story continues. <coughs> Verse 19. While Peter was thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, uh, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. No, I love this. I love the honesty of this. Peter was so perplexed by this vision, he was so confused by what was going on, that God actually had to snap him out of his, out of his uh, trance there and say, hey, hey, there are people ringing the doorbell downstairs. Um, God had to snap Peter out. So Peter uh, goes downstairs and he talks to the men. Verse 21, it says, So Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They answered, Cornelius, a centurion, at which point Peter probably kept a smile on his face, but inside he went, right? Because that's what the, you know, you hear, you, he kept a smile, but inside that's what he did. Uh, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, at which point Peter goes, yeah, right, a centurion, well-spoken of by the Jewish nation, sure, uh, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. So at this point, Luke doesn't tell us, but I think there are two options for Peter's response. Either his confusion just becomes increasingly more evident, 
And he's like, what? He's like, am I just having a nightmare? Am I still in bed? What's going on? I'm having a weird dream. And now there's a centurion who wants to talk to me. And he's like, what in the world is going on? Or he's finally starting to get it. He's finally starting to realize, oh, okay, maybe this vision from God and these people coming to my door have something to do with one another. I'm not sure what his reaction was, but we'll see he eventually gets it. So we're going to fast forward a few verses. Peter (coughs) invites these guys in to stay the night, and the next day they leave to go back up to Caesarea. Um, So we're going to fast forward, and uh, we're going to find out what happens when Peter gets to Cornelius' house. Peter went in and found that many had assembled. This is verse 27. Uh, Found out that many had assembled, and he said to them, You yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or even visit a Gentile. Right? Again, most of us living in 21st century America, we just don't understand what a big deal this actually was for Peter to go into the house of a Gentile. Um, for, for most of us who, who are living now, we just don't, we don't have any categories like this anymore. Uh, so for those of you who are Shakespeare fans, think the Montagues and the Capulets, right? Romeo and Juliet. You just don't hang out with each other. You don't go to each other's house. Your kids don't hang out together. You don't share meals together. You, you just keep your, your distance. Or for those of you who are West Side Story fans, we have the, jar, the Sharks and the Jets, right? You, just, you, don't, you don't hang out on that side of town. You don't hang out with those people. For those of you who are football or basketball fans, you have IU and Ohio State. You just don't hang out with each other. That's just not what you do. Or in all seriousness, for those of you who lived through the 50s and the 60s, you have racial segregation. You just don't associate with those people. You don't go in their house. You don't hang out together. You keep everything separate. So it was a really big deal for Peter to be obedient to God. And to go into this Gentile's house. And and what he says next is is an even bigger deal. He says, But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. Now for those of us living today, we're kind of like, well, duh. I mean, that's just common decency. We we don't call people profane or unclean. But but for a Jew living in the first century Palestine, this was a big deal. Big, big deal. This was huge. And we see Peter's beginning to understand that the vision that God gave him back in Joppa wasn't so much about food at all, but it was about people. Peter's beginning to understand that that God's love extends not just to those of the line of the Jews, but that God's love and grace and offer of forgiveness really is available for all people. And, and, and not like before where if somebody wanted to, to come into a relationship with God, they would have to undergo some surgery and change everything about their dietary lives. But that God was breaking down barriers that had been in place for thousands of years. <clears throat> this was an entire reorientation of Peter's worldview. All for the sake of accomplishing the mission of God. Everything that Peter thought he knew about how God worked in the world was coming crashing down and it was changing. 
And what Peter was beginning to realize is that he would have to change if he wanted to be a part of what God was doing. That the old ways of doing things just weren't going to work anymore for God's new program of reaching new people in new ways. And that if he wanted to be a part of the mission, that he was going to have to start doing things differently. And start thinking differently and start looking at people differently. You know, of course, Jesus had hinted at this. Jesus had ministered to a centurion, and and Jesus had ministered to outsiders, and he had told them that they were going to be witnesses of the whole world. But when you've grown up believing something for so long, it's really hard to shake yourself out of what you've believed to be true for your entire life. If you believe that the way, the the thing that honors God is is how you dress and what you eat and, and, and the kind of surgery that you have, it can be really hard to shake yourself out of that. So the the fact that that Peter was even disobedient demonstrates Peter's humility and his willingness to give up. I just just don't know if I can, if there's anything today that I could communicate that would be uh, as as severe a change as this would have been for Peter. We have have traditions that we like in church and things that we think are, are, are more pleasing to God than others, but we don't have anything that we've been, you know, ingrained in us that this is what marks us out. And so for Peter to give this up and to reach out to these people just demonstrates Peter's willingness and his humility. So Peter goes on. Uh, he's here in the house of this uh, Gentile, not only a Gentile, but a Roman, not only a Roman, but a Roman soldier, not only a Roman soldier, but a Roman centurion. <laughs> And he preaches the gospel. He preaches this, this short little sermon. And I wish we had time to go through the whole sermon and analyze it. It's a great little sermon. But, but just to recap, he basically says that Jesus uh, is the one that God has chosen to be the judge of the world. He's demonstrated this by raising him from the dead. How do I know he raised him from the dead? Oh, because I had breakfast with him on the beach. And anyone who places their trust in Jesus will be saved. And for, for Peter to say this, For Peter to say that anyone who places their trust in Jesus will find forgiveness of sins represents the fact that Peter is finally now starting to get it. This is a really big deal. What what most of us have grown up just believing implicitly that God loves everybody was a major shift in Peter's thinking. And what happens next is just remarkable. In verse 44, Luke tells us, while Peter was still speaking... The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. A couple of years ago, at the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell on the Jewish believers in Jesus. And that was made manifest by the fact that they began to speak in other tongues. And what we see now is this exact same thing that happened to the Jewish believers is now happening to Gentile Roman believers. And they didn't have to get circumcised. And they didn't have to change their dietary laws that God is showing up to them right where they are. Which is why, Luke tells us, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were what? They were astounded. They were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. This is huge. For first century Jews, that that the Holy Spirit would show up to these unwashed, unclean, dirty Gentile Roman soldiers would have been mind-boggling. And as we're going to see, 
in the next couple of weeks as we see what happens after this. This very event and the ramifications of it are going to cause extreme confusion in the church. And it's going to lead to some pretty big church battles, some pretty big church fights. You think that churches today have have some intense church fights. What this leads to in the first century church in, in Palestine, some pretty major fights, some pretty huge divisions. Because God is doing something brand new. It's something that he had always wanted to do, something he had promised, but, but now the time had finally come for him to do it. And the church was going to have to get on board. They were going to have to understand. And it took them some time. We're going to see that. But before we, before we get there, we're going to talk about the next couple of weeks. I just I want to ask, what is the application of this for us? Because we're not first century Jews. Right? We, don't, we don't have strict dietary laws. We don't believe that God, uh, God's favor on us is, is dependent upon whether or not we have bacon with our eggs. Right? What, what, what does this mean for us today? And so I, I want to pose the application in the form of a question. Are we willing to break out of our comfort zones to accomplish God's mission for us? Can we learn from Peter's humility? Can we recognize that maybe the things that we always thought were the way that that religion had to be done aren't? And that God is more concerned about reaching the people who are far from him than he is about keeping outward forms of worship? Can we learn from Peter's humility, his willingness To take the next step. One of the reasons that I think that God had Cornelius send for messengers, had him send messengers to get Peter, was to bring Peter on board. The angel could have preached the gospel to Cornelius, but nobody would have accepted Cornelius into the church. God needed to work on Peter's heart and get him to understand that this new mission was bigger and more expansive and more inclusive than they ever dreamed, than they ever imagined. And what I think is so fascinating about this whole story is that, that God never spelled it out for Peter explicitly. Right In the vision that Peter got, he never told Peter, you are going to go to a Gentile and preach to God. Because Peter may, may have resisted that even more. He gave him these clues, little clues along the way. He gave him enough information to take the next step and allow him to put it all together and come to this realization that God's mission was so much bigger than he had ever dreamed. And in order to accomplish it, he would have to change everything that he thought he ever knew about how religion worked. And I think God's asking us the same question today. As we think about where we want to go as a church, are we willing to give up what we think may be a, a worship style, a worship posture, a way of doing church that we think is the way that church is supposed to be done to realize that, that what's important to God is not how we worship Him so much as are we reaching out and helping the people who are far from God come to know God. What we see here is that people were more important to God than rituals. People were more important to God than outward forms of worship. And as we're going to see as we study the the life of Peter, and especially the life of Paul, that 
They were willing to do whatever it took to bring this good news to those who didn't hear it. And it was uncomfortable for them. We're going to see that. We're going to see it caused some pretty major divisions and some pretty big fights. But because there were people who were willing to do that. I don't believe anyone in this room, I could be wrong, is Jewish. Most of us are regarded, would be regarded as Gentiles. We would have been viewed by the first century Jews as unclean and profane. But because Peter was willing to leave behind all that he thought he knew, because Peter was willing to give up the way that he thought things were supposed to be done. Gentiles, of whom we are a part, got now to be included in the family of God for the very first time. In other words, just like we saw last week with Ananias, because he was willing to take a risk and try something new, and, and when the Apostle Paul, who planted churches throughout the Mediterranean basin, Peter, because he was willing to take a risk and go someplace that, he, that, that contradicted everything he thought he knew about how God worked, we now have Gentiles. And, and we are now beneficiaries of Peter being willing to step outside of his comfort zone and trust God to reach somebody new. And just like we talked about last week with Ananias, I believe there are people out there today in our lives, family, friends, co-workers, people in the community, who are relying on us to have the courage and the humility to lay aside what we think we may know about how church is supposed to be done and realize that the most important thing to God is not how we worship him in this space, it's not it's not a building, it's not a worship style, it's not a, it's not a version of the Bible, but it's, it's reaching those who are far from God. We're here because someone else was willing to take that risk. Are we willing to break out of our comfort zones to accomplish God's mission for us? So I'm going to say a prayer. I'm going to invite Ina and Mandy back up, and they're going to lead us in a closing song, and it's going to be a hymn, and we're just going to sing it together, um, Because He Lives. And as we sing the lyrics to the song, I really want you to think about what, what does it mean? How is your life different because Jesus is alive today? How would your life be different if he wasn't? What does it mean for you because he lives? What does that mean for you in your family? What does it mean for you in your place of work, in your school, in your community, in your neighborhood? What does it mean that Jesus' life, that because he lives, what does that mean for you? Gracious God, we're so thankful for the fact that you have recorded these stories for us. We're thankful for the humility of the Apostle Peter, who was willing to leave behind everything that he thought he knew about how you worked in the world. He was willing to leave his comfort zone and do something brand new for the sake of reaching a new group of people. Father, we're thankful for the fact that your love is not reserved for just a special group of people whom you have chosen, but that your love is for the whole world. 
that you gave your son, not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And Father, I pray that you would build in us, that you would instill in us, that you would fan to flame in us a passion and a courage and a humility to do whatever it takes to reach those who don't know you with your love and your light and your offer of forgiveness. Father, I pray that if there are any barriers in our minds, if there are any groups of people that we have written off as too far, as unreachable, that you would help us to reframe our way of thinking. Father, if there's anybody in our life that we just think there's no way that you would ever reach that person, that you would help us to realize that you love that person. Father, I pray for those who who don't yet know you. I pray that you would be at work in their hearts, directing them towards you. And I pray that you would be at work in our hearts, directing us towards them. God, I don't know why you've chosen to trust us with the message. It seems like sometimes we're just so frail and we're so human and we're, and we're so forgetful or we're so scared or selfish. And it seems like you could have just given this to your angels, but Father, you, you've given it to us. And so I pray that, that the realization of that, that the weight of that, would spur us on to action. That we would understand that that you have called us to something great. That you have called us to partner with you in this community for the sake of changing hearts and lives and families in this community with the good news of a Savior who loves us and wants us to experience newness of life both now and for eternity. Father, for those who don't yet know you, I pray that they would make a decision, that they would say yes to you. For those of us who follow you, I pray that you would give us the courage to take whatever next step it may be, to trust you just a little bit more and love you just a little bit more. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for calling us by name. Thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.